0: John chapter 14, and we are be reading just verse 12, as that will be our focus this morning. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also do, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Amen. Let us pray. Well, Lord our God, we Rejoice to be before you. We thank you, Lord God, that you have spoken by your son, that the scriptures bring to us Christ and display him in his beauty and excellency. And even from there, he speaks to us as his people. Father, we thank you that your word continues to go forth to call sinners out of darkness into the light, that your word goes forth into our hearts to strengthen us, to bind us up, that we might go forth and continue to live before you. Lord, bless your word even now that we might be encouraged in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Children, have you ever heard your mother or father tell you, maybe it's after an advertisement you watch, some great claim, but they've said to you, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Some of you have gotten older. You might start being paying attention. You'll hear uh, great claims about, oh, just take this pill, and it'll make you skinny. So think about this. What if I told you I'll give you $5,000 if you empty all the trash cans in your house and carry the trash to the dumpster? You say, yeah, right, right? Because that that's too good to be true, right? That I would give you $5,000 just to empty the trash? It is too good to be true. Advertisements for different products often push the limits of truthfulness. Buy this pill and take it every day for two months, and you lose 50 pounds. And then they show you before and after images of someone who you're to assume that's all they did is took that pill. And so you want to buy it. Well, it sounds too good to be true. Taking a pill a day while making no changes in your exercise habits or your eating Is not going to work. Big promises are made by men and then they fail to deliver. And we quickly learn to distrust, dismiss, or even ignore every big promise we hear. But we must be cautious because there are big promises that are true. Sometimes the person making the promise is truthful and has a promise or the power to keep the promise. Like your dad. What if he told you My son, my daughter, I will take you, you guys can relate to this, to Brickley's ice cream, and you can order the biggest thing on the menu if you keep your room clean and your bed made for two weeks. Is that too good to be true? You might think, well, my dad would never do that, but it's not too good to be true. Your dad has the ability to buy whatever the most expensive thing is on Brickley's menu, right? Maybe it's a, a massive banana split, but he's able to do that. And you have the ability... Honestly, you do, to keep your room clean for two weeks, right? And so, you know, that's a big promise. And it's one that indeed could come to pass if you did what your dad offered. In this one verse that we're looking at this morning, Jesus makes a great big promise. He is having the last meeting that we have with his disciples before he is arrested and crucified. What Jesus says may seem too good to be true if it were not for who said it. The one who said it has just presented himself as he is, as a son of God. He is the way and the truth and the life. He's God, and that he cannot lie. And he's God, and that he's able to do all that he promises. We're going to consider this one verse with four main headings. The first, the certainty of Jesus' promises, certainty of Jesus' promise, then who shall do the works that he talks about, and then what are the works that will be done, and then we'll consider in conclusion the greatest work of all is Christ alone. We'll begin then with the certainty of the promise. Back in chapter 1, verse 50, Jesus promised Nathaniel something big as a reward for his faith. He said that he would see even greater things. Turn back with me and look at that, John 1. Verse 50, remember that um, Jesus is beginning his ministry and Philip has been brought and then he goes and gets Nathaniel. Um, Philip finds Nathaniel, verse 45, and he says, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Well, then he comes to Jesus, verse 50, and Jesus said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And then he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Hereafter you shall see the heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Wow. That's, that's a big promise, isn't it, that Jesus has made to Nathaniel, and, of course, the other apostles with him. But indeed he did. Nathaniel and the others see Jesus as the Son of God, the Son of Man, even as Nathan- as uh, Jesus has just uh, reminded them or explained to them that if they've seen him, they've seen the Father. He is the uh, his Jacob's ladder, which is what Jesus refers to there in verse fifty one of the first chapter. He's the one who comes from heaven to earth to bring men on earth to the Father who is in heaven. He is the ladder between God and man. And Nathaniel and Philip and the others, they've come to see the very things that Jesus promised. When Nathaniel and Philip heard that promise, did, did they think, that sounds too good to be true? And yet what have they found? Jesus was able to do what he said. And now they're hearing Jesus assuring them of something in the same exact manner. In that verse, Jesus in the, in the Greek says, we know these words, amen, amen. King James, verily, verily, this is a certainty, Uh, this is a very truthful statement. The new King James captures a sense of it most assuredly. When we hear Jesus use this language again and again, we probably remember his first promise. They would have, and even as Jesus again says, most assuredly, or amen and amen, They would have their minds stimulated to think of the many times that they've heard in the past of Jesus saying these things. Amen, amen, or most assuredly, Jesus uses that 24 times in John's gospel. 24 times he is asserting that. He does three times just in his conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3. Then in chapter 6 in his discourse about being the bread of life, he again three times says, most assuredly, and then in chapter 8, he, he is correcting and instructing the religious leaders. And again, in that exchange, three times, he says, amen, amen. The disciples then have come to have every reason to believe the promise that Jesus has made. And so do we. Before we move on, let's make some application. Have you ever fallen? Pray. Pray. I'm not looking for a show of hands, but just think about it. Have you ever fallen prey to the big claims of an advertiser, and you whipped out your credit card, and you ordered the product, thinking, well, maybe, maybe just this time. It, it really is true. I sure hope it's true. You know, whatever it is they're selling, you, you want it to be true, and then you get the product, and like so many other times, you're disappointed. We become jaded, don't we, to big promises. Does Jesus' promise in verse 12 sound too good to be true? Friends, you who hear me, it is not. What Jesus promises, he gives. Jesus is able to do all his Father's will. So who is this that makes this promise? Or who, who does he make the promise to? Can just anybody take this promise that Jesus makes here in verse 12? Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also do, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And So let's consider, secondly, who shall do the works. He says, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. The way that Jesus says this, the tense of the verb concerning believing uh, would be, best should be understood. Jesus is saying the one who keeps on believing in him. It's not just a, a single moment of belief, but who keeps on. Indeed, that's the nature of saving faith. Saving faith keeps on believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. We've encountered times in John's gospel where there were those who had a, a very temporary faith or they had a misplaced faith. They, they believe that Jesus was a miracle worker. That won't save you. Remember, John's theme is that we should come to understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that's so believing we would have life in his name. That's what Jesus is talking about. It's one who believes that and keeps on believing It's a saving faith that endures. So when someone like uh, those who had that very temporary faith should not think that they receive anything from the Lord, this passage is first applied to the apostles that are in the upper room with Jesus. They are the foundation stones of the, the church. When we come to John's revelation, the revelation that Christ gave to John, the last book of the Bible, there's a point where an angel says to him, come and see, I'll show you the city of God. And he sees uh, an image, it's, not to be, it's, it's prophetic language, but it's got uh, principles in it that are true. And what he sees is a, a city four square, like a big cube, and the stones, the foundation stones of this city that, that the city is built on are the twelve apostles. Christ, of course, is revealed to be the chief cornerstone by which everything is laid out and which aligns everything. He is the first and foundational stone, but the apostles are the foundation stones. And here they are in this upper room. The promise is applied to them, but they are the representation of the church. and Jesus is building his church on them. It's not limited just to them, but indeed it is a church that spans down through history even unto our age. The promise is first to them and then to all who believe. So it must be that those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and submit to him for salvation, Jesus is saying you will do works. The promise is not, only, um, the promise is not given so that we as believers can just go off and do our own thing. You know, children, you think about if your dad gives you uh, a $50 bill, some of you are like, right. But let's just say he gives you a $50 bill. He sends you into the store to get certain things. There's a list he gives you. And you go in, and you're to get that list. You can't take that $50 and skip the grocery store and go to the toy store, right? You do what your father has sent you to do, and even so it is with us. As the children of the God, redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, he calls us to do certain things. Remember Ephesians 2 8 and 9? I want you to look at that because we rattle off 8, 9, and we forget 10, and 10 is very much germane to what we're looking at right now. Ephesians 2 For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, lest anyone should boast, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now notice verse 10 For we are his workmanship. God has worked in us. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God determines the good works. God lays out the path of our day. He has ordained whatsoever comes to pass, and it is our responsibility to do God's will. And a lot of that's involved in the ordinary day to day life that we live responsibilities as a father, as a mother in a home, or children. Obeying parents, for you children, that's the first place that you do God's will. That's your first place of good works, to obey your parents. Now, remember what Paul says there in Ephesians 2. The good works are not the foundation of our salvation. We are saved by faith in Christ alone, full stop, period. But we are saved for good works that the Father prepares in advance for us. And so in order to know what the good works are that the Father has prepared for us, we must hear his will. We hear it in the word of God preached as well as in our reading and meditating about it. These faithful followers then will do the good works that Jesus has prepared for us. We also know... That is the Lord Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, he's making intercession. He's praying for us. Children, every day, if you belong to Christ, every day he's praying for you, seated right at God's right hand so that the good works that the Father has laid out, that you, led by the Holy Spirit, would come to understand what it is and go forth and do it. Now, back to the verse, the latter part of it, we read, greater works he will do because I go to the Father greater works. Now, I've chosen, just so you know, just to take this one verse because there's confusion in the church about this verse. And what are these greater works? There are are men and women who would take this and for their own um, exaltation, glorification, uh, assume that they are going to do bigger things than Jesus did. And we see within a portion of the church, uh, errors and excess over the matters of the gifts of the spirit and assumed uh, works of God in that realm. But that's what we want to look about it, look at this particularly. Greater works he will do because I go to the Father. We learn from this passage first that if Jesus remains on the earth, then the promise cannot come to pass. Jesus must go to the Father in order for us to be able to do good works. Jesus returning to the Father can only happen after he has completed the work that the Father sent him to do. Now, what does that work? Think all the way back to John 3, 16. Many of you have memorized that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The greatest work that Jesus came to do was to save the people the Father had given to him. To save sinners. And in order to do that, the Lord Jesus Christ had to lay down his life on the cross. He had to suffer and die In order to redeem us, we were guilty and we deserve God's wrath. And so Jesus bore that wrath for us. But also, we need to understand that he lived his life obediently before the Father as well. And the scripture teaches us that his obedience, that righteousness before God, that right standing with God is credited to the account. It's put on our account as if it was his righteousness, put on our account as if it was our own. It's credited to us. Children, that's the big word of imputation. God counted what Christ did to our account, even as he took our sins and credited it to his account. This is the work that the Father gave Jesus to do. And when that work is completed, he will return to the right hand of the Father. And we're going to hear in just a few verses that if he goes to the Father, he will send the Comforter. He's going to send the Holy Spirit in great measure to dwell in his people. Jesus is telling this to the disciples as he has come to the hour. We've been hearing about the hour. We are in that hour of Jesus' suffering. Within a matter of hours, he's going to be arrested in the garden, led away, falsely accused, and then crucified outside of Jerusalem at Golgotha. Jesus is going to die in order to give life to dead sinners. In his completed work, will justify many. That is, they in Christ will be able to stand before God complete, guilt removed, sin washed away, cleansed and forgiven, and righteous, having right standing before a holy God. That's the work. And his sacrifice then opens the door for rebellious sinners to be brought into the family of God, to be adopted as children of the Father. It is astounding. I think that before we're shaking our fist at God and we're doing everything to kick against him and to do our will, and God subdues us by the working of the Holy Spirit, makes us new creatures, and now we're children of the Father. In the spirit of the adoption, then teaches us to cry out, Abba, Father. To those who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus says, To these, you are the ones who will do greater works. Before we move on, let me just ask you by way of application. Have you come to Jesus for salvation? Is your faith fixed upon Christ alone? Is he your only hope in life and in death? Are you looking to Christ in him alone? Is Jesus your Lord and your God? If so, from the heart, you know, the Spirit bears witness with your spirit. Yes, that's who I am. I'm a child of the Father. I'm a new creature in Christ. I've been born from above. My sins are forgiven. Blessed be the name of God. That's why you come to worship. But perhaps you're not able to say that. Well, now is the acceptable time of salvation. Jesus says, Whoever shall call upon my name shall be saved. Put your hope in faith, put your faith in Christ alone. Well, let's come to consider the the center here, the works. We've sung two hymns earlier in our service of worship, celebrating the mighty works of God. Do you notice that? Both of the hymns we sang uh, celebrated the mighty works of God, works that he has done, The, the works we've even been hearing about, the works of Christ. There's the works of creation. There's the works of redemption that God has accomplished. Now, if we're logical, if we think clearly we have to conclude that these works that we will do because we're enabled by the Holy Spirit to do them, they must be according to the will of the Father. We're going to cover that a little bit more uh, completely in, in a couple of verses when Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. It's not a blank check. If we're asking in Jesus' name, then we need to have a confidence that we're asking according to the will of the Father. And even now we must understand that. Jesus... The Son of God, God come in the flesh. He's fully God and fully man, full of the Holy Spirit. And yet, what did he do? He didn't just go do what he wanted to do. He did all the will of his Father. Have we not seen that in John's Gospel? Again and again and again, Jesus has said to us, I do my Father's will. I say what I hear my Father saying. I do what I hear my Father doing. He does all his Father's will. And we must do no less. We must obey God as his people. We're not at liberty to do our own thing. Now, Jesus' mighty works, there are mighty works that were of a physical nature. Uh, The turning of water into wine back in John 2. The healing of diseases, leprosy even, uh, lameness, blindness, deafness, all manner of diseases Jesus has been able to heal. These are physical manifestations of his power where people had physical infirmities, afflictions, deficiencies, inabilities, and he healed them completely. There were many, many mighty works, and they're not even recorded. We find many times we're told that he's in, say, Capernaum, and in the evening they brought the sick to him, and he healed all their diseases. You know, was that 10 people? 100 people? 1,000 people? It was all those who had diseases. Jesus was doing these wonderful miracles of a physical nature. Jesus also took a few small loaves and a few fish and he fed a a mass of humanity, 5,000 men plus women and children. It was a very physical, uh, very visible miracle. I like to think on that. I'm, just, I'm thinking about the disciples. They go to Jesus. He breaks off some of the bread. There's just five to begin with, five loaves. And they got a piece. They walk away. and Here comes the fifth disciple. There's still some. The eighth disciple. There's still some. And then they go out and they're distributing. And the bread just keeps multiplying until all are fed to the full. And then you take up 12 baskets full. They could see that. All could see that. And, of course, the people immediately want to make Jesus king because they like this physical stuff which is our nature. What about when they were on the sea and Jesus came to them walking on the water? It was a mighty miracle. It was a physical. And then he calmed the storm immediately. What about when Jesus raised the dead? The widow of Nain's son, dead perhaps for just some hours, certainly not more than a matter of hours. What about Lazarus? Is that not a mighty miracle? Is that... Not his greatest miracle in some sense. Four-day dead man. He was rotting in the grave. And the power of God through the Lord Jesus Christ raised Lazarus from the dead. These are all physical things. Let's be honest. That's what we tend to focus on, isn't it? The physical stuff. Isn't that what we want from Jesus most of the time more than anything else? Physical stuff. A little more money in the pay in the paycheck. Diseases healed, right? Particularly when it's our children. Wars and rumors of war to be stilled. We want physical things. But are not the greatest works of Christ spiritual? Is that not the case? Mightier works of a spiritual nature. Consider the greatest of all, the rescuing of spiritually dead sinners. Redeeming a people enslaved to sin. Plundering the kingdom of darkness. Nicodemus was one of the first. We don't know that he went away saved that night, but in due time he was. What about the woman at the well? In a conversation of an hour, hour and a half, two, what did Jesus do? Do you remember? He baptized her with the Holy Spirit. That is that the Spirit of the living God came upon her as she heard the Word of God, literally from the one who is the Word of God, and gave her a new heart, renewed her will. She went into the town rejoicing. She came out a sinful woman hiding from her fellow citizens of the village. And she went home rejoicing, rejoicing, saying, come. She was not ashamed of where She says, come and see this man who has told me all that I have done. Because Jesus had done a mighty work in her. The paralytic paralyzed 38 years. Yes, Jesus healed him. That's, that's amazing. But Jesus gave him a new heart. Baptize him in the Holy Spirit. The man born blind. He was blind from birth. Remember how much that was celebrated? John records it. That that miracle plays on for some time. Has anybody heard of such a thing since the beginning of time? The man who once was blind said, that was powerful evidence. But Jesus gave him a new heart. He sees Jesus later. And he says, do you believe on the Christ? And he says, show him to me. He says, I am him. And he worships. He too receives a new heart. These are the greater works of Christ. My friends, let this sink in. You could be a paralytic for 38 years and have Jesus give you new limbs and instantly make you able and coordinated to walk and still burn in hell forever and ever. You could be a leper consumed physically by leprosy and Jesus could heal you of that leprosy and you could still perish in the fires of hell greater work of christ is saving sinners every sinner is dead in sin and no sinner can change that reality my friends dead means dead spiritually dead means you can do no spiritually good thing you can only but sin dead in sin means you can only sin it's the work of god it's the work of grace. It's the work that God accomplishes in Christ, on the cross, applied through the Holy Spirit in the lives of those whom God will call unto himself, the God of all grace, the God of all glory. This is the greatest work of all, and Jesus is still doing it. There's parts of the church today that they, they run after vainly as sign gifts of signs, wonders, speaking in tongues and healings. Those need to be understood in the proper context of the scripture. They had their place in the life of the church. But Paul even writes in Corinthians that when the mature, the complete revelation of God, the word of God comes, these will cease. But what does not cease is God working in sinners' hearts. Is there a greater miracle than for someone who is spiritually dead to be made alive unto God in salvation? That's the greatest of all. And who came at the greatest price of all even Christ crucified. Jesus alone can save sinners, but indeed we must hear him. Remember Paul's words in Romans 10, how shall they hear without a preacher? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. We need the preached word of God. And ordinarily, people are converted under the preaching of the word. Jesus says to the church, the whole of those who have called upon the name of the Lord, he says, as you are going, make disciples. That's what we're to do. As you're going about your daily lives, as you're going about your work in the home, in the community, in the workplace, as you're going, make disciples. What, is the, what does that mean, to make disciples? Well, you tell other people what God has done. You, you proclaim to what, them what's revealed here. Uh, you bear your witness of the very things you've experienced yourself. And then you begin to teach and instruct them, answer their questions from the word of God the best, according to the best of your ability. And this is what Jesus says uh, to the church. You're to baptize them and then teach them to obey all things that Jesus has commanded. So what does Jesus mean when he says here in verse 12, and greater works than these he will do? What is it that he's saying here? Well, John Calvin and other commentators that I often uh, refer to, they're all convinced that the greater works are not magnitude of miracles because anyone do, do anything greater than what Jesus has done in miracles? No, we're going to talk about that more in just a little minute. But the greater works that he's done is he's speaking about the conversion of the Gentiles. Jesus... Ministry was limited to the Jews. Remember the Syrophoenician woman came to him and he says, you know, that i am not come, he says, to give to the dogs. And she says, but even the dogs get to collect the crumbs from under the table. And he commended her for her great faith. And then he set her daughter free from the demon that possessed her. Just a little hint. We talked about Naaman earlier. A man from Assyria, one of Israel's enemies, and yet God converted him. And there are these conversions of Gentiles here and there, down through the record of the Old Testament. But Jesus' ministry was to the Jews. That's who he came to. That was his responsibility, to come to the house of Israel, to come and give them the first opportunity. He was their Messiah. He was promised to them. But he wasn't limited to them because even as God promised Abraham, through your seed, that is through Christ, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That was why Jesus came to bless all the nations. But during his time on the earth, his ministry was in Israel. When he tells the apostles, you'll do greater works, he's sending them after his resurrection, not just to Jerusalem, not just to Judea, but to Samaria and even unto the ends of the earth. I remember being in church history class in, in seminary and, and having professors uh, inform me from the record of history uh, to something I did not know. I think you've heard me talk about it before, that the record of history that tells of Joseph of Arimathea went to the British Isles with the gospel. That's a little bit of a feat to get there today, isn't it? I mean, planes make it easier, but it'll cost you. But he went to the British Isles with the gospel, and, the, and Mark... John Mark, who traveled with Paul and uh, with uh, Silas, or Barnabas, I mean, we are told from the record of history that he made it as far as China and Japan with the gospel. They went to the ends of the earth. Jesus was just focused there in that land, and even a small part of that land, known as Israel, on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean, thus greater works, and that's the most ordinary use of the word or the meaning of the word that uh, John uses here in the original language, greater in quantity, in expanse, in measure, not necessarily magnitude, though there are times when it has that meaning. Jesus came to the house of Israel, but then he sent out the twelve to the nations. In the Acts of the Apostle, we see this accomplished. So we understand that greater works certainly means greater in scope. Jesus went throughout Israel. The apostles went to the end of the world. Jesus preached to the Jews. The apostles preached to the Gentiles, particularly Peter and also Paul. So what about greater miracles? There are many who want to say, hey, I believe this stuff. You know, I'm going to get the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to do greater miracles than Jesus did. Well, let's just hold on for a minute. How many did Jesus heal? I've already alluded to that. The record's not clear because that's not really the focus. The focus is that he's able to heal all diseases. But we're not told how many thousands or even maybe tens of thousands that were healed. None of the apostles have a record anywhere close to that. Even Paul in his old, old age was going blind and he was not healed. We're told how the woman with the issue of blood came and touched Jesus the hem of his garment and was healed because of her faith. We're told then how handkerchiefs were taken from Paul to the sick and they were healed We're told how Peter's shallow shadow fell on some and they were healed that's about the same thing sort of thing that Jesus did but Jesus healed people from afar remember the the Roman uh, military man his servant his trusted servant was sick and he sent some of the Jews to make an entreaty on his behalf to Jesus and so Jesus is going to him and then he sends another servant he says no I'm not worthy don't I'm not worthy that you should come under my house his message was I too am a man under authority I say to my servant go and he goes come and he comes just speak the word and so Jesus doesn't even go to the household he doesn't go near the household he speaks the word and at that very hour the Roman military officer's servant was healed at a distance, just with the authority of his voice. Jesus did greater miracles as far as magnitude. But through his men, he did greater as far as numbers. Consider this. We've seen Jesus healed the widow of Nain. I so raised the widow of Nain's son. Paul raised one who was dead, didn't he? It's the only record I could find. I'm happy if during sermon discussion you will form me of other. I mean that. The only record I could find of one of the apostles healing someone who was dead was Paul. It was after uh, Eutychus, if I remember his name right, fell out of the window from the third story and was taken up dead. Paul came down and prayed to him, and he was raised from the dead. God did that. So that's the only manifestation of an apostle raising someone who was dead. Jesus raised a man four days dead. Because he is the resurrection, and the life. The apostles were not. None of the twelve multiplied a few loaves of fish to feed thousands. As a matter of fact, none of them even calmed a storm. Paul, if he had that power to do that, something greater or as great as Jesus, I'm sure he would delight to that because Paul tells us in Second Corinthians that he was shipwrecked three times. If he had that same authority to do as Jesus, to calm the seas... Paul was not the Lord of the Seas. He was not the creator of all the earth. So we must understand that God gave the power to work mighty miracles in two times in history. To Moses in the days of the Exodus to prove to Israel and to Pharaoh that Moses was God's servant that he had sent to bring the people out of the house of bondage, out of the house of slavery. And at the time of Jesus, Jesus coming, doing mighty miracles and his apostles were doing mighty miracles. Why? Because Jesus had come to plunder the kingdom of darkness and to bring his people out of the slavery and the servitude of sin, out of death and to life. These are the two times in history when we see these mighty miracles. So we see then that some of the apostles did do miraculous works, but they were not greater in magnitude than Jesus' miracles. The apostles in the church under their leadership do, even, uh, do exceedingly greater works than Jesus in spreading the gospel. That's our focus, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Preach the word. Bear witness. Make disciples. Begin in your home. Begin with your children. Do not be ashamed of the gospel that is unto salvation. O parents, make disciples of your children. Open the scriptures. Teach them from the word of God that they might hear the truth of God. That they might believe. Ultimately, all the works that have been done and will be done through the church or according to the gifting of the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave gifts by his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads us to the places we were going. Remember how Philip was taken up by the Holy Spirit after he witnessed to the uh, Ethiopian eunuch and he's transported by the Spirit to another city. That's real clarity for Philip as to where he was to go next. But those were extraordinary times, but we too can look to the Lord to direct our steps as we pray and ask him to guide us through providence. We'll come to, in the next chapter, I don't want to refer to that. How was it that this happened? These greater works that are going to be done through the apostles, how was it they were able to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? It was so because they were full of the Holy Spirit. And they abide in Christ. Jesus says in John 15, opening verse, If you abide in me as a branch abides in the vine, you will bear much fruit. But he also says, if you don't abide in me, you can do nothing. And the Father, who is the dresser of the vines, will come and prune such branches off and cast them into the fire. My friends, the good news is Jesus is still bearing fruit for us, through us. We're flawed. We're imperfect. We're sinful. We become discouraged. Sometimes we look at our lives and we, we marvel, how could God do anything with me? And sometimes I think we decide, well, I'm not even going to try in the strength of Christ to do anything. But the Lord Jesus Christ is able to take imperfect vessels and accomplish all his holy will. Jesus is still with the church he's still using the church he still sends sends the church we're commanded to go Jesus promised here you will do greater works than I the church has been doing so for two millennia we should have every confidence he will continue to do so to the end Well, finally I want to close with really a summary coming back to something that's run through all of this as a theme and a thread the greatest work of all the greatest work of all is Christ's alone and of course that greatest work is the work of salvation it was possible that the first century church and the church for the last two thousand years has been able to do great works because of the work that christ did jesus promised the 11 in the upper room great things and indeed his promises are yes and amen in jesus because jesus went from that room to the garden of gethsemane where he was arrested they led him way as a guilty criminal even though he was innocent more than innocent He was a spotless lamb of God who came into the world to save sinners. After a sham trial, they led him out through the wall, through the sheep gate, to a hill called Galgotha, and they nailed him in his hands and his feet to a Roman cross, set the cross upright, and there Jesus was crucified. But what was really happening on that cross, and the shame of that cross, as I said earlier, our sins were on Christ. our sins were on Christ our sins nailed him to the cross in a sense it was the father's will he sent him but he sent him to take our sins and he who knew no sin we have no concept of what that is we don't he who knew no sin he was holy became sin And then the wrath of God fell upon him. The wrath that sinners deserve fell upon him. The wrath of God, the Father, the wrath of God, the Son, the wrath of God, the Holy Spirit, God in concert, in perfect harmony, and all three persons punished Christ, the Son of Man, for our sins. And therefore, all these promises are possible. Indeed, they're yes and amen. Jesus received and bore in his humanity the full weight of God's infinite wrath. The heavens were darkened in the middle of the day. The earth quaked and even opened up and people came out of their graves. In that moment, Jesus' heel was bruised. Satan's head was crushed. Our greatest enemy's power was broken. He was stripped of the power to deceive the nations. The gospel age had come, and through the preaching of the word of God, the nations no longer were to be deceived because the truth went out. Jesus died and won the victory. In death, he gained victory over death because it was not possible that the graves should hold him. And on that first morning, the first morning of the week, he came forth victorious and triumphant. The resurrection and the life lives. And because he lives, we now live. And he sends us to the nations with the good news of the gospel. He begins at home, parents. But let's not limit to the home. We've got neighbors. We've got extended family. We have co-workers who are perishing. My friends, this is the greatest news ever told. It is through the Lord Jesus Christ that we are set free from sin. That is the only hope for men. If we would see men and nations live at peace, then they must hear Christ. They must see Christ. They must believe on Christ. So let us go and do the good work that Christ has given us to do. Amen. Father, we ask you to bless us in these things. Lord, we thank you that we have every confidence that we can go in the strength of Christ to do all your holy will. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us more and more to yield to Christ, give up our selfish and sinful ways. Lord, we've heard of covetous this day. And how that is a sin that deceives and leads us astray, and Lord. How often we, we are kept from doing the the good and necessary things because we are doing the things that delight and pleasure our own will, Lord. As a, as a God over all, Lord, work in us and continue sending the church to the nations. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Let's stand together and sing number six forty four. A prayer: May the mind of Christ my Savior.